Welcome to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. This is Amy Hall, and I'm here with Greg Kokel, and we're here to answer your questions that you send on Twitter with the hashtag STRask. So, Greg, are you ready for the first question? Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, in the last episode, we touched on the idea of uh, law and uh, when we were talking about women being able to drive in the carpool lane when they're oh, yeah. pregnant. Whether the, yes, okay. So um, here's, that law. Yes. So here's another stupid California law. I don't think case. it's le- I don't think it's legal here, but I I, I haven't double checked that. So right. we'll we'll just let that go. It doesn't okay. matter. <laughs> well, so people know what we're talking about. Those in the carpool lane. If you have two people, then are pregnant women? Do mm-hmm. they qualify? And so we yes, there's two people, but in my view, it didn't matter because the second person is not a driver. <laughs> anyway. All right, so here is uh, another question about law. This one comes from Timothy. Is there a clear principle that can be used to know which Christian ethics one should strive to be made into laws and which ones should be left out of the law? Well, I don't, I don't know uh, classically if kind of these details have been worked out. I suspect to some degree they have, but I'll tell you what comes to mind, um, and that is the common good. The the uh, the reason that we have um, a legal system is to promote, to use the language of the Constitution, the general welf- welfare. I guess is the way they put it uh, in the the preamble of the Constitution. Well, uh, there the welfare, general welfare, is synonymous with the common good. We are trying to um, use a a system of law that is meant to um promote human flourishing in the broad sense the common good and and so one i think this can be a guideline and oh, by the way there are going to be differences of opinion even on that but it's a place to start it seems to me this is going to be a guideline is this thing that we're enacting into law really meant to serve the common good or is it meant to serve a parochial uh, interest, that is, the interest of a smaller group of people, and at, particularly at the expense of the common good? So, um, I mean, that's the kind of principle that I think of right now. And the notion of how the law ought to be used, even for that purpose, is going to shift depending on an individual's Um, political philosophy. So the common good might be viewed as individual liberty. So individuals get the liberty to pursue their own life and to set their own goals and kind of build their own utopia, so to speak, um, for themselves according to their, within boundaries, of course, but according to their their particular interests and and, uh, desires and views. So that would be a a political philosophy that emphasizes more individual liberty, which is the principle that was grounded, that our our own American experiment was grounded in, at least in part. Or you have a collectivist view. What's what 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 will promote the the good of everybody as a collective whole? Now that's a much more leftist perspective. 
okay? Um, and this is the concern that you have in communist countries. It's not the individual. It's the collective. And, uh, and the government then is going to build a utopia for the collective, but that is based on what the individuals in the government understand utopia to look like. So one's, um, one's conviction that you use ethical principles in law uh, for promoting the common good is going to be dependent on your understanding of what the common good looks like. And so, and that's going to be rooted in larger worldview issues and a deeper understanding or a particular understanding of what it means to be human. So, um, as a follower of Christ, I'm looking at the ethics of the Bible as God's way as the designer of everything, of uh, accomplishing human flourishing. And so I am going to be looking for those kinds of things that are, 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 are best for the society, in particular, more individual liberty, as opposed to collectivist mentality, um, which I think leads to abusive policies and uh, a violation of individual liberties, and, and how any particular Christian ethic is going to relate to that. Um, so, uh, but if somebody who's way over on the political left, who's, who sees the world in Marxist terms and sees uh, not um, equality of, of um, what's the right language here, of, the, of where you start, so to speak, as opposed to equality of... Outcome as opposed to a quality of outcome. Yeah. So American project was let's all have kind of an even playing field as much as possible so that we can move forward at our own speeds according to our own desires. Okay. Um, that's one sense of equality. Uh, another sense of equality is not a quality of opportunity, but an equality of outcome. Everybody's got to land at the same place. And that's Marxist. So um, that's going to dictate different policies and uh, and and different now I'm I'm pausing here and even actually physically doing scare quotes around different ethics and the reason I'm doing that is because the political left has no actual grounds for ethics since they tend to be um, non-theistic in their uh, in in their convictions and individualistic in their desires. So it's it's ironic because they, they they campaign for individual liberty. Maybe I'm getting off topic a little bit. I'll just make this observation. They campaign for individual liberties. I want to do what I want. You do you. You know, um, expressive individualism. We talked about this before. But politically, they're collectivists. You know, they, they, they're using political power uh, to force uh, a, a point of view and a way of doing business on everybody and, and, and more and more aggressively as time goes on. But anyway, I, so the answer is, um, is uh, vague or I have a formal principle, okay? Um, use ethics and enforce certain parochial ethics, say so-called Christian ethics, for the common good, but those terms in a material fashion are going to work out in very different ways depending on your political philosophy. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, and I think what you said is true. I think people have thought about this 
probably a lot more than we have because that's their field. Uh, so could, people can look into this more. But I, I want to add that, you know, if you're looking for a principle of which should be made into laws and which ones should not be made into laws, I think one simple distinction here could be the type of laws at the beginning of the Ten Commandments versus the type of laws at the, at the end. So the, the first four laws are all about worship. They're about how to worship God. They're about worshiping God above all other gods. And the, the last six are about relationships in society so that you can have a just society. Um, so those are, 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 I think that's the important distinction to start with. We are not going to pass laws about how you should worship God. That is, that's not the role. That's not, that, it's not even possible in our country. Now, with the Old Testament, obviously, that was the purpose of their country. God was supposed to be their sovereign. So that was a different situation. But in our country, that's not how it works. So we're, we are not going to pass laws about how to worship. But the other laws about morale, basic parts of morality, of justice, of, of not harming people, of, of just the whole moral system, I don't think there's anything wrong with people voting for what they believe to be right and wrong. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's what everyone does. And there's no neutral moral worldview. So if it's wrong for Christians to vote according to their understanding of morality, then it's also wrong for people who are atheists that's right. to vote according to their understanding of morality. And the fact is, it's not wrong. That's what every single law is, is an expression of morality. Right. I mean, for the most part, unless it's a random thing like which side of the road the car is going to drive on. No, but even that is a meant of organizing society for the safety of uh, the individuals, for the common good. Sure, but whether it's on the right side or the no, left side, that's right. But <laughs> it doesn't what, matter. The, right, on that particular. Yeah. yeah. So, so every law is is supporting an idea of morality. So there's nothing wrong with Christians as citizens in this country to express that. Now, there's also the question, so, so we have the question of the type of law, whether it's a, t a law about worship or a law about societal relationships and contracts and that sort of thing. But there's also a question of the extent of the law, because we don't outlaw certain things like lying. It's not, it's, unless it's in terms of perjury in a court case. Right. So there's a, there's a level of seriousness that is legislated against but we don't have a utopian view where we can stamp out all sin. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we kind of have a sense for that. I don't know what the exact principle would be here, but the more you try to create a utopia and stamp out all sin, the greater the intrusion of the government. So there is a point where we're not going to legislate aspects of morality. Well, that's right, because then you end up um, – intervening with, I'm sorry, um, contravening personal liberties, which itself is a moral harm and creates moral harms. So uh, this is where, as the law gets too intrusive, it creates problems, moral problems. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, and so even your, your definition or your sense of how intrusive the law should be is going to be informed by your own kind of moral sensibility. Marx said, uh, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. So um, that's kind of a, a more historical way of saying the rich should pay their fair share kind of thing. But notice that that's all coming from an ethic, 
from Marxism. So they, there's no way to ground the goodness of that in a, in a certain sense because it's an atheistic system, Marxism. Nevertheless, it is an ethical viewpoint that they're trying to impose on the rest of the world. And But that is going to interfere significantly with personal liberty, and uh, that's what we've seen, um, and it does by nature. And so that's going to create a, another mm-hmm. kind of harm in society. So you you just can't get away from these ethical concerns, no matter how you choose to use power. So the bigger the concern, the the more gravity of it. You yeah, mean, the right? more the more gravity of it. For example, murder would be an example of that. The the that's the reason why we should um, legislate against it. And then as you move towards the 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 sins that cause less damage doesn't make them not sins. God is still going to judge us for it, but the government's not in a place to judge certain things about right. our hearts or certain motivations or whatever that is. Hmm. Now, that's the problem with hate crime, by the way, but that's another issue. So That's a thought crime. Yeah. Anyway, so with something like abortion, then obviously that if it's murdering an innocent human being, that is a major concern that it's very legitimate mm-hmm. to uh, legislate against. And by the way, that that is not a it's not a Christian ethic. It is right, a human yes. ethic. You know, it isn't parochial. It isn't like, oh well, how do you baptize? Do you dip or sprinkle? This is about a basic human need, and this is why, regardless of religion, civil laws protect human beings because they they are convinced that human beings are the kind of beings that ought to be protected in a way that other animals are not protected, okay? And the question here is whether the child, the unborn child, is an example of one of those valuable human beings, okay? So it's 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 not a religious issue, though this mm-hmm. is the way it's made to be. It's no more religious than, than it being wrong to murder, to commit homicide. I think that's a great point, Greg. That is not something peculiar to Christianity. It's a publicly accessible moral principle that we accept in many other cases. You're mm-hmm. just applying it to every human being. Mm-hmm. And, of course, some would object that they don't think every human being should have protection. Some outright will say that. Yeah. Um, I, and I've had atheists say that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we have to make our argument and we have to convince people that this is actually true about reality, that we mm-hmm. ought to be doing this. Right. By the way, you said something of people, and we both made reference to people have kind of thought through this. I think it's in the Christian tradition that most of the careful thinking has been done, because there, there's a, there's a real um, concerted effort to try to make one's um, public policy and public life and understanding of the role of the use of power by the government conform to an objective external standard, God's standard. Mm-hmm. This is where just war theory comes in, you know. Uh, that is all tied to transcendent morality. In Where does trans, transcendent morality um, inform policy? Um, but if you don't believe a transcendent morality, something else is going to be informing it. And so from a from a um, an atheistic worldview or a naturalistic world or a de facto atheistic worldview, people may not be entirely atheist, but they function as if they were, then there's a whole other thing that's informing it. And a lot of it is just self-interest, a, a massive amount of self-interest. And that's why the peel is made by politicians regarding some of these things, 
merely to self-interest and not to any deeper, deeper ethical principles. So I think when we survey the field of the careful thinking that's been done to try to answer this question of how do we integrate ethics properly into policy, um, that thinking is principally done by people of spiritual conviction, especially theistic people, especially Christian theists. And you're not going to get kind of that kind of depth from the secular world. They're guided by something entire different, entirely different. Okay, let's go on to another question, Greg. And this one we do get from time to time in various forms, but since it does come up a lot, mm-hmm. I do revisit it every once in a while. So this one comes from Nurkish. In the story of reality, Greg said that Christ was enduring the punishment for man's sin. How can that be if the punishment for man's sin is eternal and delivered by God after our death? Why is the punishment Christ suffers temporary and delivered by man while he still lives? Well, this is a really fair question, and it's one I ask myself, but it's also one I think that I answer in the story of reality. And this is, um, it goes back to the famous line from Anselm, why the God-man, Cardus Homo. Um, and that is, there is a reason why God became man. And some are obvious, you know, Jesus came to reveal the Father, you know, the Son is incarnate, the Word incarnate to reveal the Father, John chapter 1. Um, but there is a there is a, a calculus to this whole issue. Um, human beings are the debtors, and so humans need to, a human needs to pay. Here's the rationale. Yet a, a mere human cannot pay, because um, he's not, he, he, one human, ordinary human, can't pay for all humans, the, the, plus all normal, ordinary humans have their own debts. So uh, that's a problem. This is why there's a slavery concern, and if this isn't resolved adequately, in, in, in a sense, in, according to God's bookkeeping, then humans are going to pay their own debt, and that will take forever, okay? Eternal separation from God. Um, so who is—what kind of man— is capable of of taking the punishment for not just for one person but for multitudes which if they paid it would take them forever to pay it well the only kind of man that could accomplish this is someone who's not a mere man but rather god in human flesh now some of you might say well how does that calculus work and my answer is i don't know we don't know that but we do know the need for a substitute that is a human. There's a kinship-redeemer kind of relationship there, but at the same time, can't be just a mere man. It's got to be something, someone who can take the full force of the of the uh, wrath of God against sin. And so, when when the Scripture says that that Jesus died for all men, or he paid the penalty for all men, etc., or God's wrath was propitiated. The point there is that because of his divine nature, something about the nature of that transaction allows him to suffer in a qualitative way that is adequate to cover every sin of every human being who ever lived. Now, that doesn't mean it's applied to everybody. It's not. It's only applied to those who satisfy the conditions, and that is faith in Christ. So, in in one sense, the work of Christ is for all men, inadequate to all men, because you have the divine Son of God who is receiving the wrath of God, the first person—I'm sorry, 
the second person is receiving the anger by the first person and satisfying the propitiating the wrath of God. Um, but uh, at the same time, there's an adequacy of that, but it isn't applied universally. It's applied individually. And it was only intended to be applied individually. I, I don't know why there's any even debate about that. God did not intend the sacrifice of Christ to go to anyone who did not fulfill the requirement. Now, this is often called limited atonement or particular atonement, but if I was an Arminian, which I'm not, I'd still believe in that. In other words, God intended the work of Christ only to apply to those people who qualified for it, which is faith in Christ. And um, so, it to me, it's like the highway system. You know, the highway system is for everybody, but not everybody drives on the highway. It's available for those to take advantage of it, but it only benefits those who do take advantage of it in the proper way. So, th those are statements that are very theologically general. It doesn't commit one to any particular view of of uh, of of salvation, like Arminian or Reformed, but it does commit you to a, an understanding that there is a substitutionary atonement made by Jesus. But that's built into the question. So uh, it it takes a a God man to accomplish that task. And what's interesting to me is that. It makes sense, then, of the statement, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If God just took a man and punished a man for everybody else's sins, and the man did it, received the punishment willingly, that would be an evidence of the man's love. It wouldn't be an evidence of God's love, because it's the man who suffered. But if the man who suffered actually is God, who takes the wrath of the Father— then it is an example of God's love that God himself would take the punishment for man's sin. And so it's only the God-man that is capable of accomplishing this magnanimous, mm -hmm. ma magnificent, and also magnanimous um, uh, task of, a, of salvation. So his two concerns here, that it's not eternal, which you explained, because he's an eternal being and his value will pay for that. His other concern about um, the punishment being delivered by man, you also address, but maybe not as explicitly. So just to sum up, God is pouring out his wrath on Jesus. Is So it's not, so while men are crucifying Christ, he's still suffering a punishment, the punishment of God. Is that, That's right. Okay. Well, well, it was during the crucifixion and darkness covered uh, Calvary for those three hours. Uh, that the Father was pouring his wrath out on Jesus. And I, I think that the darkness covering Calvary was a was and not symbolic. I mean it was symbolic. It was actual, but it was symbolized. It's, there's a there's a cloak of darkness over the sun because and this is Jesus um cries out, uh Eli Eli Lamasabakthani, this uh Aramic phrase why have you forsaken me? And of course, we know what that means. It's not a mystery. It's from Psalm 22. The next line is, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. In other words, he's being 
punished, and he knows why he's being punished. He's, he, has, he has given his life for others. It's a sacrificial death, a substitute for others, and he knows this. He's talked about this. Uh, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this is not a secret, but it's the agony of a, of a man, the God-man, receiving this unfathomable punishment. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He did by choice, and he's crying out in that regard. He's not mystified. He's not doubting. He's not. He's in agony, and this is why he says uh, what he says there on the cross. But that's when uh, he's receiving the wrath of God. It's, it, I don't know how much the punishment or the suffering that Jesus received at the hands of men is part of that broader equation. I don't know. Lots of everybody else on the mound on that day had been crucified uh, and maybe flogged and maybe beaten. And there are occasions where hundreds were crucified at once and left to hang there and rot on the cross, you know, as a visual example of the justice of Rome. But uh, it was something more that happened to Jesus that made the difference for the satisfaction of sin. All right. Thank you, Timothy, and thank you, Nurkish. We appreciate you sending in your questions. If you have a question, send it on Twitter with the hashtag STRask, or you can go through our website. Just go to our podcast page, go to hashtag STRask, and you'll see a link there to leave a question. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. (laughs) 